everyone. How are you doing? Good. Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see all of you here. It's good to be together now as our Cactus Venue Chapel and Northridge communities all join us. It's a wonderful day to be in church. Uh, we're going to kind of dive right in, be back in our, uh, our series 14.6. Uh, last week we were in the book of 1 Samuel and we talked about faith. And uh, I kind of started us with a little bit of a story talking about how faith is built and bolstered during some of the more difficult times in our life. And so the reality is that like, I can't sit here and just kind of tell you stories that are just all feel good stories because the reality is faith isn't built during those feel good times. And today's uh, not much different. We talk about the topic of idols. That's a really difficult topic. It's something that I think is really challenging. And I'll tell you already, the enemy is mad. He's not happy with what's going on here today. Last night, already this morning at nine, and there's a reality that like he's upset. And uh, we started the nine o'clock off with a little bit of a bang. Uh, the worship team here in the worship center came up, started to sing, and we lost every single wireless mic in the room at one time. Worship was a ton of fun. <laughs> so, but there's a reality. The enemy doesn't want this to happen. Our tech team was amazing. They rallied everything together and we just simply decided we're not gonna lose a syllable of what God wants to do today because when it comes to taking down the idols in our lives, it's just too important to give up on. And so we're gonna continue to press on today, but I'll tell you, it's a little bit of a tough topic because idols and idol idolatry, idol worship, uh, these are slippery things. So to do this, I want to tell you a story. Last week, we looked at a really powerful story to kind of cue up our time. And today, I want to tell you a story about my grandmother. Uh, her name was Bruna Zucchiati. She was about this big. She's super tiny, little Italian lady. Uh, she had lots of gifts. She was an incredible cook. Uh, some of my favorite meals were, were cooked from my, my grandmother. She was awesome at that. She, uh, because of her thick Italian accent, uh, English was a second language for her, uh, she did not have the ability to pronounce the word chicken appropriately. So she just had no ability to do that. And she had the skill that she could drink a piping hot cup of coffee, like whether it was 2 million Kelvin or like uh, room temperature, she could take it down in about 30 seconds. She just had no sensory nerves in her esophagus at all. It's amazing. <laughs> sit there like, Grandma, that's hot. She's like, yep. Wow. So she was an amazing woman. But late in life, my grandmother, who I, I loved and adored, uh, got diagnosed with cancer. She was diagnosed with lymphoma. And so my sweet little grandmother, just being the warrior that she is, uh, she started fighting it. And we started uh, to hear about a treatment plan. It included chemo. And so she started to receive chemotherapy and she fought and she fought. And even with the chemotherapy, she continued to decline in her health. So eventually at the end of her life, uh, it was lymphoma that ended up taking my grandmother's life. We had a beautiful funeral for her. We, we memorialized her life really well. Uh, I'll never forget my cousin saying Ave Maria. It was breathtaking. We mourned her loss. We, we grieved that she was no longer with us. And I'm about to share kind of a heavy detail. So I want you to know my family has processed this. We've dealt with it. I don't need you to do anything, but just kind of hear this because it has something for us today. What we found out after the fact was that the... Uh, pharmacy that was providing my grandmother's chemo was watering it down so that they could make more profit. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible detail. And I was incredibly blown away. Like I said, my family's processed this. It was years ago. I'll never forget what my mom said. I said, mom, what are you going to do? That's a horrible thing. And she looked over and she said, Rustin, God numbered the days of my mom's life, period. No pharmacist can change God's plan. And then my mom did something really difficult. She processed the loss of a loved one in the midst of God's sovereignty. And that's very challenging to do. But she did it. She came to the point where we forgive this man. They found him. They got him. He's in jail. That's fine. He's dealt with. 
But I think this scenario has a lot to teach us about idols today. My family was in this position where they had put their hope um, in, in the healing for my grandmother in this thing, this chemo. But this chemo had absolutely no chance of ever saving my grandmother. You see, because of a deception, we had put our hope and our faith for healing in something that never had a chance to heal her. Had somebody come along and told us, hey, listen, you guys gotta know, this chemo's not the real deal. It's been watered down. It's not the authentic thing. We would have absolutely pulled back and gone, man, take, get him out of here and get that out of here. We want the real thing. We want the authentic cure. But again, because of a deception, that fake chemo, that watered down chemical, was actually in the way of what my grandmother needed most for her healing, the genuine article. See, the reality is idols do the same thing in our spiritual lives. They come in and they sit there and they take our faith. They take our hope. They take our affections and our worship and they absorb them day after day. Never telling us, by the way, I'm not what you need. They'll just sit there and take and absorb us. When the reality is they're distracting us from the very thing that we were designed to receive, to be fulfilled by, which is the God of the Bible. Idols are a scary thing, and what you know changes everything. So that's what we're going to look at today, and as you can imagine, that's an incredibly big task. I'll tell you now, this is an area of my life where God has been working for several years, so it is not a uh, too big a statement to make to say that this message has been working very practically in my life for several years. So before we preach it today, let's come together and let's pray. Uh, God, I know because you've, you've done a lot of this work and continue to do this work, will continue to do this work in my life for as long as I'm alive. And so today I come before you and my prayer is just simple. Uh, as you identify these things in all of our hearts today, will you be what you always are, which is so gentle and so loving? Uh, you call us to uh, restoration in these areas because you know that you are best. And so as we identify maybe areas in our lives that are taking from us, Places where our faith, our hope, and our affections, our worship are being absorbed. Lord, will you bring us home in loving ways? Uh, Father, we just ask that uh, you would lead us. Holy Spirit, will you guide this? Will you take over? And will your words come through today? We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so let's take a quick look. The book of Ezekiel today. And Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6 says this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. You might be thinking, this doesn't sound very complex. How are you going to get 40 minutes out of that? Just watch. <laughs> We're parachuting into the middle of a story again. We get one verse in the middle of this book. Okay? So we got to know kind of who said that, who he said it to, and when he said it. And I love the opportunities to sit with our church and to tell the story of God's people. Okay, biblical history is really interesting. So when I say the word history, don't tune out because I'll do my best to make this interesting for you, okay? But here's the reality. Last week we were in 1 Samuel, okay? And 1 Samuel's awesome. We looked at the faith of Jonathan, but that story takes place in about 1080 BC, okay? And here's kind of the story of Israel. That period is called the monarchy. It's when they had kings. So Saul's the first king, Things were okay, they weren't rad, but Saul kind of ramps up into what the golden era for Israel was. It was David and it was Solomon. Solomon's wealth, uncountable. It was just, he was the wealthiest man in the world. He had all this stuff going, but it gets weird fast as soon as Solomon's done, 
all right? If you sit back and you think, man, I can't always get along with God's people, you're not the first person to feel that way. As soon as Solomon was done being king, this kingdom of Israel, which was at the apex of power at the time, splits. And of the 12 tribes of Israel, 11 of them go up and form the northern kingdom of Israel. And one tribe is the southern kingdom, that's Judah. And the reason that's important is because that's where our story takes place today. The book of Ezekiel is the story during a section of time in the kingdom of Judah. Here's what's going on in Judah. It's about 592 BC now, okay? So we've come just a minute from where we were last week. And in 592 BC, here's what's happening. They just got a new king in the kingdom of Judah. His name is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is 18 years old, all right? So he's not a seasoned vet at this at all. And he has been on the throne for about three months. And things are going so well during his kingship that they have been taken over by Babylon and himself and several thousand of the prominent citizens of Judah have been deported, okay? How do you like that 90-day review, right? Like this 18-year-old kid took the corner office, went in, and they got wrecked, and they've now been deported because that's what they would do. They would take the king and sort of the prominent people, export them back to somewhere else, and it would completely destroy any social structure, so that's what's going on. And at this point in their history, here's what's going on within Judah as from a spiritual standpoint. They are sitting there and they have been, strong language, but this is what the Bible says, whoring after other gods. They've been giving their worship and their affection to these other idolatrous practices. And at this point, Ezekiel is among those thousands, thousands that have been deported. And he's sort of risen up as a true prophet of God saying, y'all are a mess this isn't good, and you need to change the way you're living because God's not pleased. Here's what's tricky. Other prophets have risen up alongside him, false prophets, and here's their message. You guys are fine. God's pleased. He's not mad. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. Keep doing what you're doing. Peace and prosperity are on the way. Just stay where you are. So, we're at a point in the history where Israel's in sin, Ezekiel is speaking up and saying, stop it, and God has sort of had enough, and now they're starting to kind of crumble. They've already divided in the kingdoms, Judah's down here, and even within Judah, which is a, the tribe that's going to at some point produce the Christ line, is a mess, it's a complete disaster. And so God's people are staying in sin, but I would submit to you today, they're staying in sin for a really specific reason, because they're listening to the easy revelation rather than the divine revelation. The divine revelation says, I have issues in my life and I need to change. The easy revelation says, you're totally good. You're doing great and God's pleased with you. And so in the midst of this, God finally gets to a point, and I wanna wrestle with this a little bit today, where he turns them over to their idolatrous ways. Now, that sounds harsh. Like that sounds rough. Why did God quit on his people? I wanna do a quick timeline for you. The timeline uh, from Moses, like Moses, the whole time of Moses was around 1500 BC. We're in about 592, so roughly a thousand years has transpired. You guys remember in the Exodus account, there was that little incident, small, probably meaningless, about that golden calf. Remember that? That's idolatry. Okay, we come out of that. Joshua conquers the land. They kind of clear the land, but not completely. They still go back and forth to idolatry because we come into the judges period. There's a reason that book isn't called the judge, but judge is because there's like nine of them 
And they come one after the other because over time, Israel's, these gods seem great. Let's worship them. That didn't work out well. We got conquered by a pagan people. We'll go back to God. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And for a thousand years, God has been carrying the exact same message and he's finally doing what he's always done. I'm not gonna take you by force, people. You will choose me because I'm best or you can have what your hearts desire. But here's what I, I need you to hear. He doesn't do that out of vindication, out of like vindicating himself. He does it out of love. I saw a great quote this week in a commentary, and I want to read it for you now. Uh, this is Ralph Alexander, and he says, In response to the elders, okay, the Lord first declares that he would give them over to the many idols in their hearts. God did not do this out of vindication, but out of love. For he knew that satiation with idolatry was the only way for Israel to repent of her sin. The, uh, the, the people would become nauseated with the emptiness and perversion of idolatry, God wanted to recapture their hearts that had become alienated from him through, uh, through lust for these idolatrous practices. You see, the reality is out of love, what God did was go, okay, listen, this has to change. And I will submit to you, let's fast forward all the way to 2019. People, us, God's people, we turn from idols for one of two reasons and in this order. Revelation because God comes in and goes, listen, I'm going to reveal to you through some way, shape, or form, through my word, through a brother, sister in Christ, through your own experience, prayer life, whatever it is, I'm going to reveal to you that this thing is not best for you. And how many times has that happened? Anybody ever gotten to the point, I'll tell you, I have so many times where you just go, this sin has completely run me aground. I'm an absolute wreck right now. And then in that moment, you sort of look back at your life and you go, hmm, I kind of knew that a year ago but I wasn't in enough pain to where I actually wanted to change, so I just kept barreling through and now I'm here. That's revelation. You had revelation back there, but you weren't done yet. So we ran it all the way out to the only other thing that changes God's uh, people's mind, which is this, desperation. It'll either be revelation or desperation and God says, you choose. I've revealed that I'm best for you, but if you wanna walk it all the way out, I will let you get desperate and I will always bring prodigals home. But the reality is, at this point in the story, Israel and Judah have both gotten to the same place because the story's the same in the northern kingdom. But in Judah, they are at a place of desperation. They are nauseated with the emptiness of idolatry. And Israel is being told the same story. But Ezekiel is looking at Judah and saying, enough is enough. This has to change. See, God's heart hasn't changed. Doesn't matter where you are. 1500, 592 BC, both of them, all the way up to 2019. God's heart has always been to lovingly come in and recapture the hearts of his people. He'll let you hurt if that's what you need because he knows on the other end of it, of desperation is probably a turn, which is exactly what this verse is asking. Turn and repent. Come home. I'm best for you. What I'd say today is that God's heart isn't just to recapture the hearts of his children. I would go a step further. God's heart has always been to capture and captivate the heart of every human being. The belief of this church and my heart and soul is that every human being was made with a God spot that he longs to fill. And for so many of us, the challenge that we run into is we get to these spots where it's a challenge so what I'd say today is if you have a relationship with God, you're in this room and you go, I'm looking, I'm here, I'm, I'm looking to grow, brother, great. This is a good message to do that with. Then the way idolatry functions in your life is it is a distraction, like my opening example. Idolatry functions to steal and take the affections, the faith, and the hope of your life away from what was best for you, which is this, 
a loving relationship with God, the God of the Bible. You see, our idols take those things. The enemy's designed them that way. He wants us distracted. But what about if you're here today? Maybe mom brought you to church. I am what stands between you and brunch. I'm glad to be there, okay? You might be wrestling with some questions of faith going, I, I don't get it. Why would you kind of make this comparison? I, I don't have faith. Sometimes I wrestle with those questions. I don't really know what it means to worship God. That's an abstract concept for me. Then here's what I'd submit to you. The concept of worshiping God may be abstract, but what I would submit to you gently and lovingly, just to kind of add into the mix of what you're wrestling with, is that you may not worship God, but you will worship something. We all do. We all have this place in our life that longs to kind of worship something, or, or simply put, because that's a very kind of churchy word, you will find an ultimate love of your life. It might even be a great thing. It might be a, something that you sit back and in the midst of your kind of existence where you say God doesn't play a role in that, you may say, yeah, the ultimate thing in my life is my family, my wife, my children, my husband, my children, whatever that, that family unit looks like, you go, that is the ultimate thing. How could that possibly ever become something bad? Well, the reality is, if that is the ultimate thing, you would never say this out loud, but we've all had those moments where we go, the family's good. As a matter of fact, the family's great. I can't imagine things being better. Why am I still empty inside? Those are the desperate moments that bring us to kind of these questions. What's the ultimate end of life? What's the meaning of life? And the reality is earthly things, people included, great relationships were never meant to fill that God spot in your life. God made it in you and for him to fill. So here's what I would say. There's a difference between worshiping what can become an idol when we put earthly things on, on the throne of our heart and serving and worshiping the God of the Bible. Here's the difference. An idol only takes, only takes, because that's all it can do. Idols come in, they promise us happiness and satisfaction. They promise that they'll fill those places in our hearts and they never deliver. It's like those advertisements at the mall. You go in and you go, maybe if I buy this outfit or this suit, it'll make me look good. I'll look like that guy. That's Brad Pitt. You're never gonna look like that guy, right? <laughs> Girls tell me that the mirrors in anthropology are like, make you look tall and thin. Then you get home and you're like, this doesn't look the same as it did at the store. Sorry, anthropology, I just outed you, but that's, that's real life. I'm gonna speak truth at Scottsdale Bible Church. They can't deliver, you know why? They don't have the ultimate thing to give. They can't offer you what your heart is longing for because your heart deep down may be longing for God. And even the best of families will never fill that because they can't. The reason God can fulfill that, here's something cool to wrestle with. The reason God gives back and God does give back is because he's the only thing that can. God is self-giving. What's that mean? It means he doesn't need us. He doesn't need humanity. You see, in his perfect being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has everything he could have ever needed. He is so pleased in that relationship. I would even submit to you that the reason God creates man is because he goes, this is so good, we gotta share this. This love that we have, this is too precious to keep between us. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it because it was best for you. God didn't create humanity because he needed friends. God didn't send his beloved son to the cross because he wanted to lure people into relationship. He did it because it was best for you. So if God needs nothing from us, then why does God ask us to do things? Again, because it was best for us. Everything God has ever asked us to do is not best for him, it is best for you. He is deserving of it, but it is best for you. That's why we can say God is good all the time. 
because he is best for you. If you're wrestling with your faith today, I would leave you with some of those thoughts just to wrestle with in addition to some of the difficult questions. And I'd tell you it would be the great honor of myself, any of our pastors, or anyone who's sitting in these seats with a relationship with Christ to talk more about that relationship. But here's the thing, God, God hadn't changed. 1500, 592, both before, before Christ, or in 2019, God has not changed. Christ has not changed. He is exactly who he was then, now, and forever. The Bible tells us that, actually. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's good news, by the way, church, because he was exactly who you needed then. He's exactly who you need now. He's exactly who you'll need in the future. God hasn't changed, but what I'd submit to you today is our idols have a little bit. They've gotten a little more slippery to pin down. They're kind of a little more, I don't know, challenging and modern. Idolatry of the day back in the time of Ezekiel was a lot of worship of different fertility gods. So there were altars where child sacrifice would happen. Children were the byproduct of the sexual worship of the time. So these children were sacrificed to the fertility gods in hope that they would yield crops. That was what people lived on. Not a lot of you have altars in your home like this. But our, our idols are really different today. So let's look at some practicals. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time today. First one's kind of a layup. It's pretty easy. It's money. Money can become an idol really, really simply. And money's one of those things you need. You need money. It's, it's functional. Like it runs life to a certain degree. You need food, water, shelter. Some of those things come at a cost. So you need money. So when is it that money becomes an idol? Well, the reality is this, for a lot of us, got exposed in 2008, okay? Now, some of you, you may be like me. You didn't have a lot of money in 2008. That didn't change, right? Just, stuff got really rough. You know, it kind of came and went. People were like, man, aren't things hard right now? You're like, no, I didn't have a lot before this. I don't have a lot now. Everything's kind of the same, okay? That may be you. That's great. That's fine. But for many people, here's what happened. 2008 arrived. Uh, investment portfolios, uh, real estate investments, bank accounts went to zero, they lost everything. Foreclosures were left and right. The reality was they lost everything. And all of a sudden what they realized was, oh my gosh, I'm not okay if those things aren't okay. And here's the story I hear. Man, brother, I got wrecked in 2008. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, man, I realized I had an idol and money was an idol in my life. And they go, so I stopped worshiping that idol. I couldn't do it anymore. Really? Did you stop worshiping that idol or was it just not available? I mean, it's not like you sat there and you made a choice. If you could have done it, you'd have kept doing it. You didn't even know it was there. It's like those people who are sitting back and they're like, I used to have a real problem with speeding. And then I got pulled over. Yeah, he stopped you from speeding. You didn't make some righteous choice, all right? But the reality is people would say, I stopped worshiping that idol. Here's what I want us to see today because this is how idolatry is so tricky. For so many, what they did was they didn't learn to become peaceful, joyful, and at rest without money, they were miserable from 2008 until their bank accounts filled back up and all of a sudden they went, okay, man, God stripped that idol away and I'm good now. No, you cleaned your idol, you didn't kill it. You were just as miserable through that whole time and until you got your idol back, there was no peace, there was no joy. This can happen and idolatry is tricky this way. I told you guys, this is a wrestling match. Because if you clean your idol and you sit back and you just go, oh yeah, I, I was working with it. and it, No, it just wasn't available. But as soon as the bank account filled back up, let me ask you this. If you lost your money again, would you be better off? Would you be at peace? Would you be at rest? Or would you have lost all of your joy? 
That's a good indication of whether you just cleaned or killed an idol. What about this? We kind of got to talk about this. What about sex? I know that that's a tough topic for many of us, but here's the reality. Sex and idolatry have been linked from the beginning of time. It's such an easy place because it hits so many receptors of the human brain. The enemy goes, ah, I got it. It provides different things for different people. Men, women, we view this differently sometimes. And the reality is this. For some of us, it provides a place of status. It provides value, purpose, and identity. For others, it's, com- it's coping or comfort. But it's another area where we can get so out of whack. For so many of us, uh, and I just want you guys to know, God's done a lot of work in this area of my life. So I'm with you in this. But there's a reality that for so many of us, what happens is we get into this area and long before it ever becomes what it's supposed to be in marriage, which is designed to connect, Okay. God designed marriage to connect. And within those confines, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But for so many of us, we turn to it for comfort and coping long before it's ever in its rightful place. And so at some point we go, yeah, that was really immoral. That was when I was single or that was when this and this happened. But now I'm married and so I kind of bring it forward, okay? But all of a sudden in our marriages, we start looking at our spouses and we go, you know, I had a really tough day today. We need to do this tonight. You realize, oh, I, I kind of feel entitled to that thing. So there's an entitlement around sex. Or we come and we go, you know what? I had a really rough day. And you tell yourself, hey, you know what? I'll be okay because there's a decent chance that maybe this happens today or tomorrow. And you realize it's still coping. It's still comfort. And here's what happens. And this is what I want you to see. Sex is an earthly thing. It was created by God, right? But when we get create parts of creation ahead of the creator, you lose creation. Your sex will never be what it's supposed to be if it's an idol because you're looking to it for things it was never meant to provide. It was never meant to just comfort. Can sex at times be comforting? Yes, but if that's what you look to for comfort, it will never truly comfort you. My point is this, priorities are what create idols. If you get anything in creation out ahead of God, it can't function. God goes, no, listen, there's a bunch of things that I'm supposed to fill. And once you're filled in those areas, you can come to these things freely. Church, what I'm telling you today is if you want the whole of creation and you want it to function in fullness in your life, then I'll tell you, you got to get them submitted to God. And sex is no different, but it's an easy one to clean. It was immoral back here, but what you don't realize is in the eyes of God, it's just as immoral over here if you're still looking to it for something that God wanted to provide for you. No, 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 Rustin, you don't get it. I just want it with my wife. Right. But do you feel entitled to it with her? Does it feel like pressure to him or to her? Here's the thing, and this is a caution that I give you right now. Please don't go home and look at your spouse and go, I hope you heard that. (laughs) I hope that you heard Pastor Rustin today. Listen, I'm giving you something today, and this is, I'm trusting you with this church, Okay. Because I recognize there's a, there's a little bit of a place of authority up here when you speak. I don't want you to use this as a weapon. This is not meant to be your closing argument in the midst of a fight. I am giving you some sensitive material that you should use for self-evaluation with the Lord. And if this may be an issue for your spouse, then I would tell you, deal with them gently. Pray for them and love them while God changes their heart. Because idolatry is really hard. And when the, when the Lord starts taking these places, these high places of worship back in our life, it hurts. So love them well while God changes them. But don't use these things as a weapon. What about church? What about the religious idols that we have? 
Okay, a lot of the stuff I'm gonna give you today is out of this book. I'd recommend this. This is the single best book I've ever heard of on this topic other than the Bible, okay? This is a book by a guy named Timothy Keller, and it's called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, Keller, was an, he's one of the smartest men I've ever read. I absolutely love him. He was a, a pastor of a very conservative church called Redeemer Presbyterian in the middle of very secular New York City, and it flourished, Go figure that out, okay? But you can get this on Amazon. You can have it to your house in a couple of days. Our bookstore is probably sold out of it at this point. But I'd recommend, take a deeper read because I'm scratching the surface of this topic today. But we're gonna look at a couple of quotes on some church issues. The first one would be this, doctrine. You go, Rustin, how could the things that we think about God possibly become an idol? There's just no way. I mean, they're all good things. Let's take a look at this. Keller says this on the topic. He says, this occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on, keyword, God himself and his grace. Your doctrine is not what died on the cross and ascended to heaven. A person named Jesus Christ did and your relationship is with him and you're saved by his blood. Your relationship is based on his grace. So you kind of go, well, how would this even work? Isn't the Bible pretty clear? It's pretty black and white. We all believe the same things. Yeah, do my job for a week. Just tell me that statement, right? The reality is we have issues all the time where people go, this verse says this, and I believe this. And someone else goes, this verse says this, and I believe this. Well, what does that look like? Well, if you approach those issues with contempt and anger, and you turn that person into an enemy, I'm telling you right now, your doctrine may be an idol. When it is submitted to God, you can approach people with compassion and grace, love and care instead of going, well, it's pretty easy, they're stupid. Solve the problem. No, 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 that's not love and grace. That's not caring for each other as we work out our differences because we're unified in Christ. That's where doctrine can become an idol. What about this, success in ministry? You may go, well, Russ, I don't even know how that would apply to us. I mean, we're not in ministry. You go, let me clear something up for everybody. If you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you are in ministry, all right? Your job is to receive and spread the love of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, whether it's your job or not. But that's what it means to be in ministry. If your full-time job happens to be equipping the saints to do that work, then that's me. You may be a, you may be a pastor or a minister somewhere doing something specific or working in a parachurch ministry or something like that. But here's what can happen. That can start to get idolatrous when this occurs. Spiritual gifts, talent, ability, performance, and growth are often mistaken for what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. Love, joy, patience, humility, courage, and gentleness. Even ministers who believe with the mind that I am saved by grace can come to feel that in their heart that their standing with God, get this, depends largely on how many lives they are changing. We're all in ministry. We all know people who are hurting. So here's what happens. You're working with that couple. Marriage is in a tough spot. You sit back and all of a sudden you start to kind of go, you know, I'm really hoping they make it. And then they go, you know what? We don't want to do this. We're getting a divorce. And you're just crushed. You go, oh my gosh, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't know how I'm going to go on. I just don't want to work with couples anymore. Okay, it might be that addict who decided to go back out. It might be that rebellious kid who goes, I don't want anything to do with your church or your God. If those things crush who you are, I'm telling you, that may not completely be compassion and mercy. You might be sitting back with a bit of an idol of success in ministry. 
And instead of telling yourself the truth, which is that God loves this individual or these individuals more than I ever could, and he's more hungry for their restoration than I ever could possibly be, so Lord, I, re- I completely release them unto you to love and to care for. You just let me know who's next. But I'm at peace because you're on the throne. If you're not at peace unless this thing works out, it is out of order. And we gotta bring it back in and give the people who we are loving and caring for back to God so that we can be at rest. We can be at peace because he's on the throne. Here's a good one, morality. Morality, the way that we act, the things that we kind of think about ourselves and the righteousness of our living. You go, oh, give me a break. How could that possibly be an idol? Attention's up here. Because we have lived virtuous lives, we feel that God and the people we meet owe us respect and support. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. Here's what Keller says. He says it's called being a self-savior. You start looking at your life and you start going, all right, here's the deal. I was, whew, I was really messed up when I came to Jesus. So I was in deep need of his perfect sacrifice. But now that we talk about it, now that you bring it up, I'm starting to look pretty perfect myself. I'm not quite as reliant on that perfect, that perfect sacrifice as I used to be. You start to look at your spiritual life like you're climbing a mountain rather than walking a path, okay? When you start to climb a mountain, it's easy to look down on those who are coming behind you instead of looking back with grace and compassion and mercy for where they still are. And by God's grace, he may have brought us through some of those things, but we look back with grace and compassion because we are saved by the same blood and of the same sins. I want to do something for kind of this last one because it's uh, kind of pertinent to our weekend. It's Mother's Day weekend, so it kind of focuses on, on parenting and particularly motherhood. But there's a reality sometimes that parenting's tough. Am I the, I'm probably not the only one who's feeling that. I'll assume that right now. But there's a reality that parenting's really hard. And so instead of going out this week and finding a mom and kind of interviewing her and showing her my story, I thought I'd introduce you guys to, to one of the, the women who I just think so highly of. She's absolutely awesome. And let her tell her story a little bit today about her walk with idolatry on this topic. Would you do me a favor and help me in welcoming my best friend and my wife, Jamie Rosella? Jamie, thanks for being up here. Um, it's been so fun to watch you do the work that you've been doing, though I know how hard it's been. Uh, and so one of the things that I wanna do is, would you mind sharing with the congregation uh, a little bit about what your idol was and a little bit about how it functioned? Yeah. Um, hi. Um, for me, um, one of the things that I really struggled with a lot was um, health and control. And those two things really came about for me as soon as I had um, our, we had our children. And I, for the first time, really realized how much I loved to feel in control. And nothing made me feel more out of control than having kids. And um, yeah, <laughs> so um, as soon as our kids started to get sick, which happens, um, it just did something inside of me where I kind of developed this anxiety and this kind of panic around um, health and sickness. And I just wanted to control situations so badly to try and um, just prevent things from happening that were bad. And um, it just came from a place in my heart where I really wanted to protect them. And I know that that's a good thing, but it absolutely went beyond that where it became this obsessive thing that just caused so much anxiety within me. So. Yeah, that's great. Um, you, we've talked a little bit today about that kind of revelation piece. So my question would be, what was it that brought you to the point where you recognize this as an idol in your life? Yeah. 
Um, there were quite a few things, I think, that brought me to that place. And one of the first ones I would say is I made a lot of agreements um, with control, anxiety, and fear. And uh, what I mean by that is a lot of the lies and thoughts that I was hearing, I was believing for myself. And so it would be things like, well, if you don't control this situation and go take control of it, then something bad is going to happen. And so it's kind of like those things where I went, oh, yeah, that's true. And I kind of agreed with those things that weren't from the Lord and allowed them to really take over for me. Um, I think another big thing that you mentioned as well is that I started to realize that I wasn't okay if our family wasn't okay. And if um, our kids weren't healthy, I wasn't okay. And I just started to realize, oh no, like this has really become a bad thing for me. It's just taken over. And um, the thing that I think is was so great that I realized in all of this is that it got, the idol got so bad for me that I realized I was never actually okay. Even when we were healthy and things were good, I still wasn't okay. Um, I had been been robbed so badly of my peace and my joy because I just bought into this idea of kind of being in control. Um, and control and peace don't exist together when I'm the one that's thinking I'm in control instead of giving that control over to the Lord. And so um, just really feeling robbed of that. And I think as well, um, it really robbed so much of my enjoyment with my kids because when I was with them, I, I couldn't enjoy it. I wasn't in the moment because I was so worried about the what ifs and all of the things that could happen that I really was never just settled and in peace. So all of those things kind of happened and that's really what happened for me. Yeah, I remember how hard that was. One of the things uh, that I like is you, you kind of, we talked a little bit about today about the difference between cleaning an idol, right? Which is more of that behavioral change to that place of like killing an idol, which is really kind of an about face of the heart. Can you talk kind of a little bit of the wrestling match and, and, and really kind of what it looks like for you to kill this versus just kind of keep it at bay? Yeah. Um, as Rustin mentioned as well, idols, um, they don't just go away. We have to do the battle and we have to go after them. And really, um, for me, it was a choice that I had to make every day to relinquish any illusions that I had of being in control and just turn those things back over to the Lord. And um, just to be completely honest with you, this is something that I still struggle with. It's just something that continues to crop up from time to time. And so it's a, a big practice for me of daily surrender. And that's one of the things I think has brought the most victory for me. And it's starting every single day on my knees before the Lord, just turning over and releasing my kids to him. Releasing the day, releasing the things that will happen, whether they're going to be good or bad circumstances, that I just give that to you, Lord. And it's in your hands and you're in control and it's not about me. And um, just really letting that be the start of my day makes me have the ability to handle so much better anything that comes, um, whether it's sickness or health. Um, and then I also think um, speaking truth over yourself is so important. And I just do that from God's word. And I love that there are so many um, small verses, big verses all through the Bible that I think speak to specific things that we're going through. And one of the ones that I love that I speak over myself a lot is Psalm 94, 18 and 19. And it says, when I said that my foot was slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. And um, I just think that that's so wonderful because it's, it's the truth of going, okay, instead of believing these what ifs, I get to speak that over myself and that's say, right. no, Lord, you will bring joy to me today. You're the only thing that will bring me peace and really choosing to find victory in that. That's so good. So how do you know now, right? Like when we talk about like, what is it, if you can, just talk a little bit about what the victory 
of this looks like and, and the difference between knowing you're okay now and kind of what that is for you. Yeah. Um, one big thing I think for me, I don't know if a lot of you other moms can relate to this, is that there's so many things that um, culture tells us we have to do to be a good mom. Mm-hmm. And one of the big ones that I really bought into was that like my kids' health was in my hands and that there were all these things that I could be doing that were going to help them not get sick. Um, And I know there's obviously, again, there's some things in that that I'm sure are very true and good, but um, for me, it was really about finding a settled place in my heart of saying, I am a good mom because the Lord made me a mom for these two kids specifically and for their circumstances. So no matter what happens today, I get to rest in the fact that I'm their mom for a reason, only me and you for your kids. And that was just such a wonderful thing to believe that truth. Um, Also, I realized that I really had made my aim being okay and being healthy. And there was kind of this point where I realized like how, how sad for me that that's what I wanted, that my prayers were about being okay and being healthy instead of truly looking for what the Lord had for me and where he had abundance and where he had life and passion and all these wonderful things that brought peace and joy to me. And so it was so great when I was able to stop um, aiming for health and aiming for okayness and really searching for what the Lord had and all of the abundance that he has for me and for our family and for our kids. So good. Hey, it's fun today being Mother's Day to get a chance just to tell you thank you for all the things that you've done to find freedom in your life, which is providing some incredible freedom uh, for our family. And so thank you for the courage to come up here, give your testimony to our entire church and be willing to just declare some of that freedom for them too. So thanks. I love you. All right, so all of this is kind of that revelation piece, but the big question that we've got to deal with now is, so what do we do? I mean, what does it look like? What, what if the Lord is ringing your bell right now and you're just going, oh my gosh, my eyes, the eyes of my heart are being opened and I'm realizing that there's some areas here where I'm sort of stuck, then we go back all the way to the beginning. What did the verse say to do? What was Judah being asked to do by Ezekiel? Turn and repent. It didn't say hey, Judah, do me a favor, go to lunch with your mom and spend a few minutes thinking about this. That was not Ezekiel's message. The message was this, there is a heart change that is needed. The reality is that God is hungry for those places in our heart. And so if what you realize is that you're being stolen from, how long do you want that to go on? I mean, let me ask you, if you knew that somebody was in your garage right now, stealing all your stuff, would you go, I should really think about what I'm gonna do about that. No, you would go home and you would get them out of your garage. The enemy's in your garage. He's in your spiritual life. He set up deceptions for all of us where he goes, hey, can I get you to worship over here? Can I get you to worship your kids? Think about this. If family is an idol for you, you are looking to your family to do things that God is supposed to do for you. You imagine what that must feel like for your family. Imagine the pressure on your kids if your happiness and your contentment is based on them being successful. They're not supposed to carry that weight. That's not what that was meant to be. If you want your family back, let's get it submitted to the Lord. Let's get everything that God has in that relationship. If you want to flourish within your family, men, women, anybody, then let's get those relationships back to where the only thing that's being required of them is what was supposed to be required of them. 
If you want to get into a healthy, loving, caring relationship where you can parent your kids and not be afraid of them being unsuccessful, get them back behind the Lord and and be able to make the statement, I am okay because God is on the throne. End of list. And he will help me work through anything in my heart that could possibly start creeping ahead. Part of the, the deal today is you got to hear this message today as a champion cry of victory that, listen, I'm telling you from even my own experience, God can destroy your idols. But he's, he's equipped you with the weapons to do that. That's what the Bible says. We are weapons of our warfare are good for taking down strongholds, taking down idols. The high places of our heart should only belong to one. There should be one high place in your heart. It belongs to the God of the Bible belongs to Jesus Christ. He died to have that place. And if you're sitting back going, I don't know, I've lost these things. Church, question for you today. Do you want your money back? Get it submitted to the Lord. Do you want your sex back? Do you want your church back, your doctrine, your morality, a moral life? Do you want that to just be what it is instead of, I don't know how to make mistakes because if I'm not moral, I don't know who I am. (sighs) You're gonna make mistakes. It's not you perfect, it's him perfect. That's what the cross was all about. But we learn to be able to fail, which we're gonna do at times because we recognize my life and who I am is not based on me being perfect. And when I make mistakes, I can humbly say, oh, my God, my God, what have I done? And we can reconcile with each other. What I wanna do today is I wanna lead our church corporately in a time of repentance because we have the security in who God is to know that today is a day of celebration. Moms, there's not a better gift I could give than to say, if this is an idol for you, anything that I've mentioned, and by the way, this list is not exhaustive. The enemy is far craftier than just these six or seven things. Could be anything. But if God's kind of pricked your heart with this today, then what I would say is the best gift that anyone could receive is God is calling you away from that thing in a beautiful way. And today starts a journey of coming home. But church, are we strong enough to have that be out of revelation rather than desperation? If you want to get to a desperate place, know you have an idol and just see how it turns out. That's desperation. But God may have put a call in our hearts. He's had one on mine for several years in some specific areas where he goes, I'm bringing you home, Rustin. And this will be better. It feels like he's taken an organ, but I promise it's an idol. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray right now. And I don't need you to come forward because we're going to fight a spiritual battle. And I want to teach you how to fight a spiritual battle spiritually, not with just some physical action. I want to I see heart change. I want heaven to make a joyful noise today because God goes, man, there are thousands of people down there who are turning from their idols and coming back to a place where I am on the throne of their life. And so what I want to encourage you to do now is would you bow your heads, every single person. Bow your heads and close your eyes. There's nothing to be seen here, right? The spiritual places, the heavenlies of our hearts are invisible. I don't want you to pray out loud. I just want you to pray quietly to yourself. And let's take back some of these places. Let's take back the lands of our heart that belong to the Lord. So repeat after me quietly to yourself. Uh, Jesus, I come to you today. And I repent of this idol in my life. I want you to say it to yourself, whatever it is. I recognize that I have been turning to this thing for far too long. Places of my heart that were never going to be filled by this idol have been starving. And I simply don't want to go on any longer. I am tired of the the emptiness. I am nauseated by the perversion of this. I recognize that these places of my life are best put in your hands, submitted to your authority, given to you and you alone to rule. King Jesus, will you rule my heart? 
that me and you would be so in love that I would hunger and thirst for your righteous life, not because I need it for my identity, but because you offer it and everything that you offer is best for me. So I repent of this idol and I turn from this idol. I take my faith back. I take my hope back. I take my dreams back. I take my happiness back. I'm bringing all these things home to you today, Lord. I'm placing them at the feet of your throne so you fill me up. And out of that abundance, Lord, I might go into the world every day, go into my family every day and operate out of abundance already knowing that I am enough because you are enough. God, the cry of my heart is to be close to you and I recognize this has taken me to a place where you are not. So I'm coming home today. I receive your forgiveness for this, Lord. And in Jesus' name, I shatter this idol off of my life. This door is closed. These agreements are broken. Thank you for loving me, for continuing to love me, for the power of revelation that I can turn at any time and come home. I thank you for doing this work. And Lord, I thank you for continuing to do this work. That You love me so much that you'll never quit on me. Pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen.